1: Welcome back to New Books in East Asian Studies. My name is Sarah Bramal Ramos, and I am one of the hosts on the channel. And I'm here today with Johan Elverskog to talk about his new book, his new translation, The Precious Summary, A History of the Mongols from Chinggis Khan to the Qing Dynasty. Welcome back to New Books, Johan, and thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today.
0: Well, thank you so much for inviting me back. It truly is a pleasure to be here.
1: Great. So with that, as you know, the traditional question on the channel is how did you come to the field? Um, But you have already been asked that once on the network already. And I will link um, the episode for that, your answer to that question um, in the blog description that accompanies this. So for a change, Um, I was hoping you could talk about how you came to this book, The Precious Summary. So this text is, as I'm sure we will talk about, the most important work of Mongolian history written in 1662. But when did you first encounter and read it?
0: Oh, that's a great question. Um... Yeah, I mean, kind of that, you almost have to kind of spool back to the initial question that you didn't want to ask of how I got into the field. I mean, so, but to kind of lay the groundwork of what what I was doing in graduate school is I came into the field of Mongolian studies kind of through the back door from Tibetan studies. And in, in a certain sense, I wanted to figure out how Tibetan Buddhism became operational and how it you know, historically entered Eurasian uh, life and culture. And of course, you know, when you scratch the surface on that, of course, it wasn't the Tibetans that played a big role in that. It was the Mongolians. And so, uh, you know, when I went to graduate school at Indiana University, of course, I was studying Mongolian um, and in kind of Mongolian studies. There's kind of three foci in a certain sense. Some people work on the Empire period. And then there's people who work on the kind of the, the revolutionary 20th century period. And then there's the whole anthropological crowd i mean coming out of cambridge university and other institutions like that um and so there's this massive gap i guess you, you know using chinese chronology you'd call it the ming Qing period that's largely overlooked of course there's certain scholars who who worked on it particularly henry saroyce and Morris rasabi and others but that was kind of really my interest so what happened during this period and of course there's always you know the big problem that everybody points to is like there's they claim that no sources um available to study this period, um, and particularly Mongolian sources. Um, But there are Mongolian sources, and particularly these Mongolian chronicles from the 17th century. And you know, my idea, again, this was in, in the 90s, it was the height of kind of like ethno-nationalist scholarship and, you know, breakup of the Soviet Union, breakup of Yugoslavia, and everybody was, you know, creating new national narratives. And that was what pretty much everybody in the academy was writing and talking about. Um, And so my interest was like, how did the Mongols write their history, you know, and very quickly when you start looking at it, of course, all the contemporary or, or modern interpretations, you know, again, they blot out this period as a time of backwardness and Manchu colonialism and um, you know, let's not talk about it because it was a bad time. Um, and so, but that—that that was my interest, my you know, what I wanted to kind of unravel. And then when you, you know, to to do that kind of work, of course, you need to do need Chinese sources and Tibetan sources, but then also the Mongolian sources. So, I read it uh, beginning in graduate school. Um, you know, and then you know, to it, 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 it do any kind of you know history of the Mongols for this period, you need to delve into these sources um, extensively. And so I, I did that for my dissertation and, you know, earlier books and numerous articles. So this has been kind of a, a lodestar in all of my scholarship. Um, and so, I mean, I've, you know, harvested passages here and there and, you know, historiographical interpretations and all the rest of it. Um, and, you know, I mean, I, I'd been kind of cobbling Together, a translation for many years. I mean, this is a long text. You don't you don't do a translation overnight. Um, and ultimately, what kind of forced me forced my hand to really engage with that it, bullet it together was uh, was was COVID. Um, basically, in March 2020, as everyone knows, everything came to a standstill, and pretty much as with many other people, we're all in lockdown, and uh, my brain wasn't working properly in order to delve into a, a serious monograph and I thought well maybe I can go back to the to the precious summary um, and and finally complete the translation and so that's what I did during the during the lockdown
1: so it sounds like you are one of the rare few that <laughs> Um, I think a lot of people entered lockdown with with great and glorious plans, and it sounds a little like this great and glorious plan sort of came to fruition.
0: It it did actually, which is yeah. I mean, I, I don't know. Uh, I guess I'm kind of a madman in various ways, but um, yeah but that was that's what that's what I did during those those uh, somber months or year,
1: whatever. Yeah, you know. som- somber years. <laughs> um, I will say, you know, 2023. This does seem to be quite a year, or at least we seem to to be moving in a period of some years that are particularly good in terms of translations of, you know, Mongol history sort of coming out. And I am, of course, thinking of The Secret History of the Mongols, which comes out later this year. Um, So I know that you are, you know, personally sort of interested and invested in making primary sources about Mongol history more available. Is that something that, you know, do you feel like we're coming to that point? Is that sort of where the field is moving? Uh,
0: well, I mean, one of the you know problems in, in this field is, of course, there's so so few people who actually work with Mongolian sources. Um, so it's, it's kind of like you know the three or four of us who actually do it have to carry the front of the work, which is uh, uh, an uphill struggle. But of course, you know Chris Atwood at Penn, who's coming out with his translation of the Secret History which is coming out in the Penguin Classics series, which is going to be, you know, kind of revolutionary for the field. Um, and that'll be great. Um, and of course, he had his earlier uh, translation that he did with Lynn Struve, um, go, again, going back to the good old Indiana University days, um, which is the rise of the Mongols, um, five sources. I mean, those are Chinese sources, but looking at the rise of the Mongols before, um, you know, whatever, Chinggis Khan or the unification of the empire. I mean, so that and I understand that just won won some big prize um, and and deservedly so, um, and you know so so those two sources and then this one um, and then you know Professor Atwood and I are are working on one of those uh, sources series for the Columbia uh, University uh, Columbia University Press ancient civilization civilization series. So they have sources of Tibetan sources of Korean and sources of Japanese and Chinese and whatnot. Um, and so we're working on a, a, a sources volume for, for the Mongolian tradition. Um, and that's a, a laborious, ta- laborious task, laborious um, task, but it's coming together. Um, and so, you know, with with these other ones that have come out, um, and then and then that one, I think it would, it'd be a real boon to the field.
1: No, ab- absolutely, and I I will say you know at least at least this reader is eagerly anticipating um that <laughs> that Columbia series um so I'm I'm sure there are others but I will just speak for myself um eagerly anticipated at least by one
0: um yeah. so uh, yeah you're not the only one a lot of people are kind of like when's it gonna be done and I'm like uh, well uh, we're working on it and so <laughs> it, it it will be done eventually.
1: Great. So thinking about, you know, just translation in general, um, as we're thinking about, you know, that, that other project, which is also involving translation, um, was there anything that was important to you as you were thinking about moving, as, as you were thinking about translating this book in particular, The Precious Summary? Was there anything that you found that you had to do to really make this 17th century Mongolian history, you know, legible and approachable to 20th, 21st century readers? Was there anything that you know you had to do to make this text um, work?
0: Well, I mean, in, in the in the field of Mongolian studies, I guess kind of our um, translation that we that we always look at and pointedly avoid not to do that, which is uh, a Francis Cleeve's translation of the Secret History, which was kind of done in the King Jamesian English, um, but it was kind of like the only available source until um, Igor Dracula came out with his his massive translation and. Uh, commentary. Um, and so in a certain sense, one thing to, that I really wanted to avoid, or uh, obviously I'm not going to do a King Jamesian version because I could, wouldn't be able to do that, but I, I wanted to make it uh, sensible to a modern reader. Um, again, this is complicated language. Obviously, it's from the 17th century, you know, vocabulary, terminology. Um, and so, you know, that, I, I'm obviously want to be loyal to the text. Um, I'm not making things up, obviously, um, but I did want to make it um as as readable as possible and one of the you know one of the reasons that the text is so highly prized in in mongolian cultural world is because the the language is incredibly rich and there's extensive use of poetry um i mean so the other one of the other Mongolian sources that I translated, The Jewel Translucent, which is an earlier from 1607, and it's the history of Alton Khan and his descendants. That one is written entirely in verse, Um, and so I I kind of had an experience working with Mongolian poetry, but so, you know, not only just making the the prose uh, legible and coherent to a modern reader, but I really wanted to kind of capture the, the 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 poetry, which is a really really important part that makes this work um, uh, so meaningful in the, in the Mongolian world. I mean, again, during during the seventeenth century, there were several of these histories written, basically kind of um, trying to understand or explain, you know, what happened with the with the Manchu conquest and or the Mongol submission to, to Manchu authority, and um, and 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 of all of those sources, this is the one that became uh, the the masterpiece so to speak so i really wanted to ha- have it speak in a certain sense to a modern reader i mean i think you know there's nothing worse to do a, a, a translation and then somebody reading like this is terrible <laughs> like i don't i don't want to read this um and hopefully i mean again you know hopefully um it, i i succeeded in that regard but on um, the the third point that i really wanted to do is provide uh historical and and uh annotated notes i mean again anybody who's coming to this if you know i mean again the assumption is that you know people who do chinese history as an undergraduate um they'll use sections of this in in the course and even if you know they have done you know chinese history even even if the professors of chinese history they're not very necessarily familiar with uh, mongolian history or who these people are you know and all the events that are you know understood for for the reader uh, for a mongolian reader and so i try to provide a lot of historical background so you know anybody who's coming at it and you know sees all these names and places and events and you know so there's a large uh you know apparatus of historical uh, information so hopefully it may, makes it accessible to anybody coming at it
1: absolutely there there are extensive notes here that are extremely um helpful and also you know very um, again, just speaking on behalf of myself, the reader, um, <laughs> extremely helpful in, in um, uh, orientating and providing um, a reader with all of that background, um, which is, again, something I, I particularly appreciated. Um, but you mentioned there, you know, the, um, the fact that this, you know, has been um, deemed to be, you know, a masterpiece it was the one of the um, exceptional sort of texts that came out from this period. Um, And you also, you touch on a little bit in the introduction of of your translation, The Precious Summary, um, that this was, you know, prior to the rediscovery of the secret history um, of the Mongols, this was recognized as the history of the Mongols. Um, So could you give listeners a little bit of a sense of that history? You know, where does this book sort of sit Um, within the field? How has it been approached? Um, There's a couple mentions here, just sort of an earlier German translation, but how, you know, how have, how have scholars seen and used this, this text?
0: Yeah, no, that's a great question. And, you know, I mean, again, I mean, I guess, I guess the the first step of this process is that the Mongols themselves recognized this as, you know, the best source for their own history. And so, you know, it, it was transmitted through manuscript versions and there's many many different versions across the Mongolian speaking world and you know as opposed to these other ones where there's like one 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 exemplar or something th- this is the text that everybody read um, and you know as, as a result of that um, you know eventually when you know during the Qing Empire and there's this you know obviously uh, you know, Chen Long in particular is obsessed with collecting sources and, and making sure there's no anti, anti-Manchu sentiment in these things. And so in 1777, um, you know, he commissioned an imperial uh, block print. Uh, of the text. And then that became the basis for a Chinese translation and then a Manchu translation. And so, you know, the, the interest kind of like exploded. Um, The text had also gone into, uh, into Tibet and then become part of the kind of the Tibetan historiographical tradition. And so, you know, when, you know, Western uh, scholars started, you know, delving into this stuff in the, in the early 19th century, you know, like of course they're like, well, what, what are the Chinese scholars reading what are the Mongolians reading what are the Tibetans reading this is the source that everybody pointed to um and so it, so the but the real kind of uh factor that made it really really big is that it was the first Mongolian text that was translated into German um, already in the 1820s by a Moravian missionary who was working among the uh, the kalmucks in, in southern Russia and which gives you a sense of the spread of the text that you know even the kalmucks the the, the they, this was part of their their historical tradition, um, and so the one that was translated into German, of course, it entered into the the bloodstream of European uh, Asian Studies scholarship, and. You know, and, and pretty much anybody who was working on anything related to Inner Asia. I mean, of course, this was the time of, like, Klaproth, you know, trying to figure out who the who the Uyghurs were. And I mean, and, and, and Stanislas Julian, you know, was working on all these, you know, the Uyghur and the Mongols and, and Tibetan historiography. And, of course, you know, try to unpack what was going on. And, you know, Russian scholarship was trying to figure out what was going on in Central Asia. Um. And this became kind of the the go-to source, um, you know, that it, you know, especially once it had been translated into German, it was readily available. And so, anybody who was writing about Tibet or or, or Xinjiang or Mongolia or the Qing or China as a whole, this was taken to be, you know, a legitimate, uh, you know, accurate representation of, of history. Um, and so, pretty much anybody who was writing in the nineteenth century or European scholars would would reference this work. Um, You know, as an as as you know, this is what happened, kind of a thing, Um, and so it was huge. And then it was only until you know when the secret history was rediscovered in the late 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century that people kind of moved away from this source and they kind of said, like, it was you know, well, this was there was a lot of fabulation and you know, Buddhist Buddhist stuff, um, and it wasn't really true history. Um, And so then it kind of became demoted. And again, it was also the, the you know, the shift that happened with, you know, everybody wanted to focus on the empire or or the contemporary period. And again, so the ming Qing period fell out. And as a result of this source, I mean, obviously, anybody who works on this period you know, goes to this source. Um, but ultimately, it was supplanted by the secret history.
1: Mm-hmm. No, thank you for, for charting that out. Um, with that, why don't we dive a little bit deeper um, into the text itself? Um, as you've sort of laid laid a few um, breadcrumbs and your sort of discussion of the history about what the, what this contains and what it doesn't contain. Um, so let's turn a little bit more to it. Um, so as you say in the introduction, this is a, Coherent narrative of Mongol history from the creation of the universe up to the reign of the Kangxi Emperor. So, 17th century. So, this is a long history, Um, and the precious summary is many things. To quote from the introduction again, it is a Buddhist cosmological history of the universe and proper rule, a history of Chinggis Khan. A history of the post of the post Yuan Mongols, a history of China, and also a history of the Mongols' um, Buddhist conversion. It is also a work trying to make sense of the new Manchu state. Uh, so, with all of this, I think it is important to say up front that there is no way that we are even going to cr- to scratch the surface on the events and the names. In this book. Um, So interested listeners really do need to seek it out. Um, But I did want to ask you about the beginning. So this book opens with the history of the universe. um, And it starts with the author telling us that he's going to explain how the world system, the external material world was established. And you know, for readers or listeners who are looking to this for a history of succession and leadership struggles and empire building, That might seem like a slightly odd place to begin with the history of everything. Um, So why does the author start us here? And what do we need to take from this creation story?
0: Um, I think the most important thing to recognize is that this is uh, profoundly, uh, it's a Buddhist work. Um, There's no... uh, again of course everybody knows that the mongols you know converted to buddhism Altan khan met, met the third dalai lama in 1578 and then set in motion the uh, uh, whatever the, the second conversion as it's conveniently called and then of course the the standard explanation is oh well you know the manchu ching just kind of appropriated this buddhist imperial project and the mongols just you know whatever willy-nilly just followed along because they were buddhist or something like that and that's kind of like the standard explanation that's one of the bugbears or whatever that i've been kind of pushing against in 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 a lot of my scholarship um but Mm -hmm. please please
1: listeners seek out our great ching
0: (laughs) (laughs) thank you for the plug (laughs) (laughs) but um and uh, again you know i mean this kind of I mean, so this Buddhist narrative obviously it comes from the Tibetan tradition, and particularly, um, I mean, in in the Mongolian context, it comes from Pakpalama, Lama, the 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 Guru of Kublai Khan, who initiated him into tantric Buddhism in the in the 13th century, um, and he wrote this famous uh, introduction to Buddhism for um, for Kublai Khan's son Jingim, who was who was the heir apparent, but then died um, before he could take the throne. But so this source is kind of the you know, the basis for Buddhist cosmological understanding and Buddhist political theory, and the kind of what they talk about—the two realms. That there's the realm of political power, which is in the hands of the of the of the secular ruler, the Khan, or in this case, or the emperor. Um, and then there's the religious sphere, which is headed by uh, a Tibetan Lama. Um, and so these these two work in a symbiotic relationship, and you know, in order to make a functioning Buddhist state. Um, and so this is, again, this is a profoundly uh, Buddhist work. I mean, the understanding is is that, you know, to have a successful life and ultimately to achieve salvation, um, you know, you have to live in a Buddhist uh, government or you, you have to live in a Buddhist state. Um, and so this, you know, the kind of the overarching narrative is, of course, you know, it goes back to the the creation of the world. And this is goes back to, you know, a, a fifth century Indian Tibetan treatise. Vasubandhu's um, Kosha, and uh, you know, it's the standard Indian Buddhist conceptualization of the cosmos. But then built into this is this political argument that you know, you know, the Dharma comes into the world, the Buddha appears, and he teaches. You know, this is the path to salvation, the Four Noble Truths, etc., etc. But you know, you know, again, in the modern West, as a result of mindfulness and all the rest of it, it's kind of stripped of its political context. Um, but I mean, the Dharma was a, profoundly a political project um, and particularly in, you know, in, in East Asia. Um, and so the, the understanding within the system is that yes, you can be a Buddhist, but it's really, really good to be a Buddhist in a Buddhist state. And the Buddhist state, you know, is basically the vehicle that en- enables peace and uh, prosperity to happen, but also provides the the kind of the framework where you can actually do Buddhist meditation practice or whatnot, and, and thereby achieve salvation. And so the whole the whole premise of this text is that this is the kind of you know, government that 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 needs to work in order to achieve nirvana and so the text you know starts with you know the the creation and then the buddha you know reveals his revelation and then the text explores indian history and the great you know ashoka etc and the great buddhist rulers of india but then of course you know built into you know buddhist kind of conceptualizations of humanity humans are invariably um greedy and stupid and things go wrong so you know the great buddhist empires of india collapse and then of course the mantle is taken up by the tibetans and then of course the same thing happens in tibet and then it's the mongols the kublai khan in particular who picks up the mantle and creates a buddhist empire um uh, you know, out of Beijing. And then, of course, that collapses. And so the whole story is this, you know, you need to have a Buddhist empire. And so this is kind of like the undercurrent or thread that, you know, is to explain the Man- the, the Manchu Qing dynasty. They are the ones who revive the Buddhist mandate. And so, you know, it's kind of this four-part development. And so, you know, Sagan Sechen, I mean, in conventional or like, you know, modern or particularly communist historiography, Sagan Sechen is seen, you know, perennially, you know, the Mongols are always resisting Qing power. But I mean, he pretty much loves the Qing uh, and the Manchus because they create a stable state where Buddhism can be practiced. Um, And so that's kind of like the larger, you know, why begin at the beginning? Because that's, you know, (laughs) that's how Buddhism works and everything, you know, you have to have this political entity in order to have uh, a true uh, Buddhist uh, world.
1: Mm-hmm, absolutely, and and as you just laid out, it very much you begin at the beginning because it it, it explains the end. <laughs> then where where this narrative um comes to a close with the Manchus um coming in and and bringing um bringing about that I don't want to say promise, but bringing about that that ultimate um, Buddhist state and. and we will get there.
0: Um, but you mentioned... But, but, I mean, but I would say it is kind of a promise. I mean, it is mm. kind of this kind of messianic kind of thing. They are righteous. They are good. I mean, and again, all the language that they use. I mean, there's that famous prophecy of, of, of uh, you know, of, of, of the founder. You know, there's a, a comet comes through the sky, you know, and he's particularly pointed out that, you know, he is the, he is the holy one, which is the term that they use for a righteous Buddhist, Buddhist ruler. And so that's like the you know the mark and this this famous figure in earlier in the narrative basically pointing out to the mongols this is the guy we should follow and so Mm -hmm. and they they do
1: Mm -hmm. you mentioned there um you know the the i will stick with that language then the promised ones. so thinking then of the un the unpromised ones of this this history sort of takes us through um the yuan dynasty and you make the point that the narrative sort of explains why the Mongols lost China, right? They, again, they give the unpromised ones, the ones who were not able to bring um, this this political, um, were not able to complete what the Manchus ultimately do. So in, in the argument that's being sort of presented, the narrative that's being presented here, um, why did the Mongols lose China? What sort of, what went wrong during during that period?
0: According to Saigon Satchin, or, or according to Ac- modern scholarship,
1: Acor- yeah, according, according to, to him, according to him, to him. Yeah. yeah. What what is yeah. how does he
0: view it? Yeah, yeah. He's not talking about environmental disasters and you know inflation and those kind of things. Um, no, I mean the the story that he tells about Zhu Zhang is, of course, is completely fictional and com- completely made up. I mean, the story of you know that Zhu Zhang is working for the last Mongol ruler and he's like you know his second son kind of figure um and then ultimately you know whatever he steals the empire back but undergirding all this is the the whole history of the of the empire period is you know it's extremely truncated and and you know i mean again now there's so many books and scholarship about the empire period and like the beginning of early modern world etc of course you know Sagan sentence doesn't care about that all all he cares about is how did the mongol r- rulers relate to their tibetan lamas and how did they create this buddhist paradise so these like you know short paragraphs like this emperor takes over his his lama was this tibetan person and they did all these great things they published texts or they built stupas or they built monasteries or whatever and then when it gets to the to the last ruler token Timur, um, you know, basically, he starts making mistakes in, in, in regards to the Dharma. And in particular, he doesn't listen to his Tibetan Lama. And this is kind of like, you know, the, the you know, whatever, the cause that, that, that ultimately results in the fall of the empire. Um, you know, ev- eventually, you know, all of this stuff is happening and, and, and they're trying to, the emperor or talking to him, or trying to figure out, you know, what should I do? And, you know, he goes to his lama and his lama says, you should do this. And, you know, the, whatever, the Mongol ruler gets, you know, upset and says, I don't want to hear anything you have to say, you should leave and you should go back to Tibet. And so, you know, for the reader, this is, you know, if you're building a Buddhist empire, obviously, that's not what you do. You don't you don't kick out the pope and say, you know, we're going Protestant or something. Um, and but that's pretty much what happens. Um, and so that's the reason that the Mongols fell. Um, and in this regard, Julian and Zhang, I mean, again, it's, it's very kind of counterintuitive. But, you know, in, in Mongol historiography, particularly of the 17th century period, I mean, the, the founding of the Ming is never seen to be a bad thing. Um, actually, it's a good thing. Um, basically, you know, the, the Mongols had basically uh, messed it up, so to speak. They, they couldn't keep things together, which is, you know, the sign qua non of, of righteous Buddhist rule that there is peace, there is stability. Everybody gets food on time. But, you know, obviously when there's famine and earthquakes and, you know, the flooding of the Yellow River, things are not being done properly. Um, and so Julian John, you know, again, this the story builds up that, that he is good. I mean, he knows how to collect taxes and all this other stuff. Um, and so when he comes in and takes over, and the Mongols flee north, you know, it's you know the way that's presented is well, Juyan John righteously and rightfully took the great state, and uh, and the Mongols um, were left to their own devices up on the up on the up on the step. Um, and then of course, then it becomes the civil war and all the rest of it. But again, it's basically the, the the reason. I mean, according to second section, is that they lost the dharma. They, you know, and again, so this whole period becomes just one endless, you know, feud with the with the oirats or feud amongst themselves. And basically, the reason that all this chaos happens is because they're not Buddhists. They've lost the they've lost the faith, and so you know, it's their own fault. And only until Altan Khan, you know, reconverts, so to speak, back to Buddhism. Does the kind of the ship right itself and things can uh, you know, be proper again? But then there becomes civil war again between the, the various princes you know, and, and the various Buddhist lineages, um, and then of course that civil war has to be brought to an end by the by the by the Manchus, um, who are seen as yeah, you know, you know, Bodhisattva Manjushri and all that, all of that. You mentioned that
1: when. Um... You know, chaos chaos in, in, ensues. I guess when after um, the Ming comes to power and the Mongols go north, and I think you describe it as operatic um, in terms of the 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 Mongol Oirat civil war that happens. And I mean, so much. It, it again in this narrative, um, so much happens. You have demon possession. Um, there there is fratricidal murder. There is revenge being enacted by a basket boy. There is. Um, uh, Chingiz Khan m- murders a Khan he did not approve of with a with a mysterious arrow. There's there's a son being passed off as a daughter. There's a feast, and then there's bloodshed. I mean, there's a lot <laughs> in this part of there's a yeah. lot that happens.
0: Yeah, but at the same time, like I mean, you know, yes, it's. But I mean, if you come at it as again, like if you're coming at it as the thing about the undergraduate reader, this, you know. It would it, probably make a good Netflix special, but, um, it, but you know, what I try to do with the notes is to explain, like, the background of this. I mean, so, like, Basket Boy, Aruktai, I mean, he's actually the most powerful uh, Oirat or, uh, individual on the steppe. I mean, he's given all of these titles by the Ming court. He's even given the title Prince of Har-Horam. Um, so he, and he was, without a doubt, the most powerful, you know, individual on the steppe. Um, but again, he was Oirad, so he couldn't, you know, take the, take the uh, any real authority because because he wasn't Mongol or d- direct descendant of Chinggis Khan, and so that that's what all those feuds are about, right? I mean, so who has who has the le- legitimacy? And so yes, it's you know all of these sexual scandals, and you know, uh, uh, and, and, and and then the murder as a result of that, and so you know this is the way that the story is told, but hopefully the notes can kind of explain, you know the the background to this kind of uh, fantastical telling of it.
1: Oh, ab- absolutely. And if anything, you know, in, again, in thinking of the overall sort of goal of the narrative, all of this chaos is, is, as you just indicated, sort of also pointing to the fact that, you know, these people were not the legitimate rulers, um, right? That this was not... Um, this is this is not ideal. <laughs> what they were what they were doing, right? That it very clearly presents them as sort of discredited. Um, for they do not have the legitimacy, and they are unable um, to create um, the 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 Buddha the proper Buddhist state. Uh, and in thinking about you know things that you know caught my eye, um, there is a lot of different you know queens. There is a lot of different women. There is mothers who are you know very important um, who you know give birth to various sons, and then there is um, queens and, and, and to, you know, soon to be wives and mothers who refuse to marry because the one that they're marrying is not the proper descendant of Chinggis Khan. There's a lot of, you know, very important, um, you know, political figures in this who are women. Um, and I don't specifically have a very targeted question here, um, except just to ask you, I'm curious if there's anything um, that you think is worth noting about this. Are there any particular, um, female characters, or, you know, again, in the narrative, um, who stand out to you and how they're being presented? Or is there anything unusual here? Or is this all very typical?
0: I, I mean, in, in one sense, it's, it's pretty typical. Um, I mean, again, we know, I mean, that, that Mongol women did have a lot of power. Um, especially in the empire period, you know, all of these regencies, you know, when they couldn't, like after Munka or whatever, I mean, they couldn't choose who was going to be the the proper ruler. And it was always the wives or the mothers who were kind of like the power behind the throne who were pushing this and all this other stuff. And Kublai Khan's wife is, of course, famous as being very, very important, um, including playing a role in the the conversion. Um, And so historically, Mongol women have, had, um, a lot of power and been very, very prominent, um, you know, politically, economically. Um, and one, I mean, one of the reasons that that they had this power was just because of the, of the tradition of, um, my, 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 my brain's not working of, of marriage, um, where they, they retained their, their dowry. Um, and so one of the most, you know, powerful queens in the story, I mean, and historically, is Alton Khan's third wife, uh, this uh, famous, uh, called Queen Jongin And, um, you know, I mean, and we know historically that she married four successive sons, um, as, as, you know, and again, it was the Chinese, you know, she was kind of seen as being an ameliorating force. This was at a time of, you know basically the Ming dynasty was falling apart and they couldn't maintain the garrisons um, and, and, and the Mongols were just kind of running rampant um, over north China and and and, and marauding and and, and looting um, and and so she was seen you know she, as after Altan Khan passed away that she could kind of you know, uh, keep the, the the youngsters in check, so to speak. And so she was, you know, in, in order to, you know, act as a kind of a pro-Chinese agent, so to speak, the the Ming court gave her titles and, and, and you know, and all these other things, but she had an enormous power. Um, and, you know, she was without a doubt, probably one of the most important uh, political figures and economic power powers on the steppe in the late uh, late 16th century. Um and you know i think one of the interesting things i mean and i've written an article about this is that she is pretty much the last powerful mongol woman we hear about after after her women disappear in the mongol historical tradition um and one of my arguments is is that it was it was buddhism that kind of clipped the wings of 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 women um and and so you know women kind of fell out fell out of the historical narrative completely um, in the Qing period. But so in this earlier pre-Buddhist period, um, Mongol women without a doubt had a huge amount of uh, of power and she was the uh, definitely the the power behind the throne for l- at least three decades.
1: Mm-hmm. Thank you for explaining that. Um, as we're sort of moving to the end of the narrative, um, we see much of the narrative revolving around a few key issues. So we have the the Chinggisid legitimacy coming to an end, decentralization and infighting continuing, and then the adoption of Buddhism. And you know, with all of this, we see um, the notion of where political authority and legitimacy you know really lies. We see this sort of changing and morphing. Um, is there any particular part of the narrative that encapsulates these tensions for you? Is there anything here that you want to really emphasize as a as a place where you see this playing out?
0: I don't know. That's, yeah, that's a great question, but it's also a really hard question. I can't think of, I mean, like, you know, like one episode or something. But I mean, again, you know, whatever to lay my cards on the table. And, um, you know, I mean, again, Buddhism has such a, you know, positive connotation in, in, in the West. And I guess that's been one of my kind of whatever scholarly kind of uh projects to kind of problematize um that thing. And so again, you know, I mean again, you read, you know, the conventional uh Mongolian histories like once they convert to Buddhism, everything's great, everything's honky-dory and, you know, um and then they're on their path to salvation or whatever. Um, But it was really the conversion, I mean, again, the the disempowerment of women is probably in today's world not seen as being a great thing. Um, But obviously, you know, that was one of the consequences of a Buddhist conversion. Um, I I mean, elsewhere, I've looked at kind of the impact on on legal systems, right? I mean, you know, Buddhism comes in and, you know, rejiggers Mongol conceptualizations of justice. and, you know and again with the conversion and, and the political power um you know w- 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 this basically fuels the the civil war that that you know that is kind of the the fuel that results in all of these different princes making alliances with with the manchus um you know again buddhist legitimacy is the vision and so once mm-hmm. alton khan converts and says you know and again he's an illegitimate uh heir to the throne he can't he's not a direct descendant of Genghis Khan so he can't claim the throne even though he is the most powerful ruler on the steppe but once he converts you know that basic sets reanimates the the kind of the buddhist vision and so then pretty much any one of these other dying princes can convert and align with the tibetan lama of different lineages of the kakyu or the sakya or whatnot and so you know setting up you know their involvement in tibetan civil war at the same time but you know, so this is the beginning, you know, so Buddhism comes in, you know, for all the good things that it does, but it also enables this kind of decentralization. All of these princes can say, well, I'm a descendant of dying Khan. So I'm basically a descendant of Chinggis Khan. And now I'm a Buddhist and my Lama is XYZ. And so I've created my little Buddhist utopia, and I'm going to go fight my brother who's, you know, has another Lama and, you know, claim their territory. And this is a civil war. And this not only, you know, in in, among the mongols but it's also you know it becomes in tibet um and then it's with the hulk you know and they break away and then of course with the with the zungars i mean so basically you have a four-way civil war going on um in the 17th century over political legitimacy and who is the rightful you know buddhist state right i mean the dalai lama says I'm the rightful, you know, Galden Khan among the Jungars says, I'm the rightful one, you know, and the Hulk do the same thing. They create the jets and dump of Tuktu. And of course the, the Manchu Qing is doing, doing their thing. So you have a four way civil war. And of course, this you know, isn't basically settled until, you know, Chenlong you know, destroys the, the Jungars. Um, but so this kind of conversion and this kind of decentralization, um, you know, again, you know to problematize the Buddhist narrative. Everybody who thinks, oh well, this is a great thing, but it has all these consequences because of the political power, especially when it's linked with the with the the Chinggisid principle and you know, who has the right to rule. And once you open up the Pandora's box, so, well, I'm a Buddhist and I'm a descendant of Dying Khan. Anybody can claim to be the rightful ruler, and that's exactly what happens. And so that's the civil war and the kind of the undergirding for all of these princes, you know, first, they're fighting amongst themselves, they're fighting the Tibetans. And then eventually, you know, there's Ligden Khan, and they're like, all right, we're gonna align with the Manchus, and we're gonna settle this, and then we'll create a a, a Buddhist super state that we're all subservient to.
1: And it really sort of ends with that, that Buddhist super state of the narrative ends with this, you know, this vision of peace and unity. Thus, by the grace of this Lord Khan, all the vast people had their desires fulfilled and rejoined, with their hands and feet resting on the ground. Um, We sort of end the narrative ends here with um, uh, the validity of the decision to side with the Manchu's being sort of um, supported. Right? You have the Mongols being shown to be to be you know chaotic, chaotic and fragmentary, and then the Manchu's being blessed by heaven and pious Buddhists, Um, but as we sort of look to the end of the narrative and, and look to, you know, the end of our conversation, is there anything about um, this narrative that we haven't had a chance to talk about that you want to emphasize here? Is there anything that we haven't covered that you want to highlight?
0: Oh, um, yeah. Uh, <laughs> sorry. I'm, kind of, um, I'm, I'm, I'm struggling to think of something. I mean, I'm sure there's a million things, but um again i think it's what what is important i mean again going back to where i started with like the ming Qing period everybody thinks that we don't have sources um from this from this period um and in particularly you know again we have a lot of chinese sources um which of course are incredibly biased as 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 everyone knows um and so this this These kind of sources exist, and there's other ones, uh, a lot of other ones that are just beginning to be tapped by scholars, that give us a really kind of you know totally uh, fascinating perspective on 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 this period and particularly this this, uh, part of the world. I mean just a couple of weeks ago i was on a dissertation defense at the university of pennsylvania and it was one of chris atwood's students who was uh, defending her dissertation on, on the cult of genghis khan and the history of the cult and um and of course you know there all, all the other faculty are are in the room and you know and she she defended her di- dissertation incredibly well and passed and all the rest of it which was wonderful but you know at the end of it all of the the Penn faculty the sinologists Um, were were pointed out, like, I guess, a a month earlier, another uh, graduate student, Penn, had defended a dissertation on the the Ming garrisons. Um, And they were all just, like, completely stunned of, like, how radically different, um, you know, the life in the Ming garrison and the Chinese sources that you can talk about, and then what was going on in Mongolia, and that's pretty much just, you know, 50 miles away. Um, and, you know, completely two totally different universes, you know, but happening simultaneously. Um, and again, you know, all, all the questions like what is China? You know, what is Chinese history? What should we talk about and all the rest of it? Um, uh, you know, I think these kind of sources for anybody who studies Chinese history, these are the kind of sources, you know, again, you know, not, not to like go back to like the 1619 argument or whatever, but I mean, again, um, you know, or, the, or the whole new Qing history and all the rest of it, you know, to understand Chinese history, we need to understand that there's a lot more going on within the, 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 the contemporary boundaries of the PRC. We can't understand you know, Chinese history without talking about the Mongols, without talking about the Tibetans, without talking about the Uyghurs or whoever. Um, and so these sources are incredibly valuable kind of like, I don't know, to use Drew Gladney's old term destabilizing China um, and so I think that's one of the important things of, of these sources. Um, not only just to understand the Mongols, but to understand pretty much all of East Asian history. And so even go back to you know, the 19th century uh, scholarship, you know, all of those people, you know, anything like Paul Pelliot or whoever, they were all multilingual, all working in multiple sources, and I think now we kind of live in a in a monolingual world in Sinological scholarship, um, which is I think is, is is really unfortunate. And so again, these sources provide us, you know, very interesting new perspectives on how to think about what is and was China.
1: Absolutely. So now that you've come to the end of this book and your your covid project um at least the or at least this little part of 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 what you were doing during that time um what are you working on now what are you working on next you you h- talked about a few little things at the beginning i don't want to say little in the certain terms of scope and scale but just sort of small minor things maybe um, what are you working on at the moment though
0: well, you know how like academic publishing works it's a it's a it's a it's a long drawn-out process so I actually have one book that's in press um, right now um, and uh, it's a it's a history of, of Uyghur Buddhism um, again this is kind of going back to my first book that I which I did was a survey of, of Uyghur Buddhist literature and this has obviously been an interest of mine for well the last 25 years basically um, and you know considering the current situation I, I felt it imperative to write uh, history. I mean, obviously there's enormous amount of scholarship on this, but it's in German and Japanese and Russian. And, um, you know, again, a lot of China scholars, a lot of Buddhologists, a lot of inter-Asianists don't know this, uh, chapter of that history. And so, um, so that's what I did and it's currently in press. Um, hopefully we'll be out, uh, in the near future. So what I'm actually working on now, um, it's a very strange, uh, thing but um, I'm I don't know if the, uh, I'm posthumously finishing Thomas Olson's last book um, I was asked by his families and executors um, he'd been writing a book um, on the history of alcohol um, and I mean it was kind of envisioned initially as uh, as like his the royal hunt in Eurasian history kind of a big history of alcohol across Eurasia um, but with the material that, that that i've gotten it's it's basically going to become a history of of alcohol in in the in the empire like his book on pearls um so alcohol in in the empire and uh and and the successor uh whatever mongol states whatever you want to call it um and so yeah so that that's what i'm working on right now
1: oh wow so they both sound like fascinating projects. One nearing its end, I guess, of its lifespan in terms of <laughs> academic publishing.
0: <laughs> well, um, it's, it, it's it's in the press's hands, so it's it's in so it, it's it's off my desk. I I, you know, I'm done with that with the with the Uyghur project, but I'm I'm in in the thick of the of the alcohol project, which is kind of put, pushing me to drink more alcohol, which is probably not a good thing. <laughs> well. Best of luck with that.
1: Not with the alcohol drinking, but with the working on the alcohol. Um, And, you know, best of luck with that. I hope to hear more about it. But thank you for taking the time to talk with me about this book.
0: Thank you so much for inviting me. It truly was great.